Oh, what are we cheersing to today? Life. So many, so many things. Life. First day of trial. Excitement. Trying to uh, get down to the truth. Okay. But we've, um, so we just finished an application and I'm going to have to have a drink too before I get into this. Yeah, so give a title to this um, episode. I will, because this is a recurrent theme in our pre-trial applications. This is before we even get to trial. I'm going to call this the dirty words of sex assault trials. So there's a couple of things that keep coming up when we're asking to use evidence, which is what these applications are for, that we need permission from the court to use evidence, especially if it's of a sexual nature. And uh, so for a long time, the phrase common sense has been like a dirty word, right? And you can almost see judges cringe when you mention common sense. But lately the focus is saying, we're not permitted to use evidence on the basis that it will give context uh, to a narrative Context and narrative are apparently no-no words, including just solely, you're, you're trying to challenge the credibility of the complainant, which of course we are. <laughs> That's the point of a trial. Um, but so, so these things, there's a reason why we're being told we're not permitted to do this, but it's, you know, from the case law, a misinterpretation of what was said. And we were actually told that context and narrative is dead since a case called Goldfinch. Okay, so let's frame this for everybody. So Diane and I were recently in an application where one of the submissions for the lawyer for the complainant had specifically made the submission that context is dead. Narrative is a clever way of trying to get in context. It's dead since Goldfinch, which sparked Diana to get up and walk out of the room. I think you told me I had to leave, actually, because no, I was getting so you were getting riled up as a calm. <laughs> and I actually somehow remained calm. And to review for everybody, and, and there's, this is a bit of a review because we've talked about this throughout a number of podcasts, and we don't want to be overly repetitive, but it's important to emphasize this because it's so incredibly disturbing that um, these submissions are being made and we're seeing more and more uh, these arguments being made by Crown attorneys and their factum. So again, just to regroup everybody, in a sexual assault trial where there is some relationship between the accused and the complainant, so our client and a complainant, and we want to bring an application to ask certain questions about prior sexual history and or about certain documents that we have in our possession. So we're now be, forced to bring applications to use, even if they're benign. Right. So they could be text messages or emails or even pictures. Any document, any document that we're required now by the a case. A receipt. Everything. <laughs> yeah. by the, it's a good point. By Regina versus JJ, Supreme Court of Canada decision, anything Anything, no matter how innocuous, we have no choice but to bring this application. So we're doing it. And so in a recent application, there was these arguments made, which was very disturbing. And I mean disturbing in the true sense of the word disturbing. Yeah. And we carry on from out, there. We should point out first, too, that this is important because people come in here saying, how come you can't just get my charges withdrawn? Right? They don't, they're like, how is this going to trial? There's no evidence. And it's like, the reality is, is if you think you have evidence, you're going to have to jump through hoop after hoop after hoop. And it's now a process that, you know, it's, it's an access to justice thing too, because this is all at expense of the accused. And we're now forced to bring these applications. And the applications will require an affidavit. So they better be prepared to tell their side of the story. Again, another good point. So you know, whoever is watching this podcast, if these are people who've been through the system and have been aggrieved and had the, this horrific experience, if you're a lawyer or if you're potentially looking at our firm to help defend you, and I'm not just in the promotional thing, but people come to us and they go like, how can this happen? Why is this so cumbersome? And why is this so expensive? And why is it going to take so long? Because there's a lot of work involved because the law has been made so incredibly complex that we have to bring these motions. And an access to justice issue is very much at the core of it because not every human being can afford to defend themselves. Even when we give a break to people, we don't even charge for every single hour we put into drafting. It is incredibly complex. And as you're going to learn as we talk about this, because there's an appellate case that's scaring the hell out of you, yes. that's going to go to Supreme Court of Canada. And it, it, it emphasizes how if you're going to advance one of these applications, you better be prepared to lay out in your application and the affidavit of your client in what, detail. what your defense is in very complete, 
comprehensive, coherent detail, everything. And if you think it's something where you want to hold something back, you may lose your application. And one of the things that's helpful is that we actually publish a, a newsletter every two, every two months, sometimes a little bit late. This is sort of an advanced version of... We're late. This is supposed to come out for October, but it's, it's a lot of writing right now. And so we were looking into, uh, you know, and when we check for all the new decisions of, of import that come out every month. And uh, so this one actually is called, Is Context and Narrative Dead Since Goldfinch? And yeah, so this is our first topic. So yeah. what, what was terrifying was that <clears throat> the argument is simply this. The Crown and the lawyer for the complaint will say, any evidence that we have that we want to advance at trial or cross-examine on, other than the subject matter, other than what happened at the moment that the sex assault is alleged to have occurred, is presumptively inadmissible. Yeah, so it could be like a weekend of, you know, drug-fueled sex going on, but only one of the occasions is alleged to be non-consensual. So apparently you can't talk about the fact that there was other sex going on throughout the entire weekend leading up to an incident. Or, or even worse than that. So let's say these people have a relationship and there's on this particular day, there's an alleged sexual assault. We're not allowed to talk about their f***ing relationship unless we bring this application. You may think, well, wouldn't that be natural to have some sort of context to understand who these people are, how they relate to each other? How did this come out of this relationship? Well, we have to ask permission of the court and we have to seek you know, leave of the court to prove that this is probative. Mm -hmm. And Goldfinch, uh, interestingly enough, was a case where the sole item of, of concern was that he was permitted to say that their relationship was that after having dated before and broken up, they were they became friends with benefits. Right. And the phrase friends with benefits was uh, obviously implies some sexual activity. And so as a result, they, they decided that he actually should not have been permitted to, to uh, have that evidence go in because mostly because his application was deficient. Explain that a little bit more slowly so everybody gets it because yeah. we've tried to do this before, but this has incredible education value. And we have, you know, God bless, we have viewers from Ireland, criminal lawyer in Ireland, people in Australia and other jurisdictions who are comparing their uh, circumstances and their legal principles to ours. So this is, and, and we get great comments and feedback because it's really good to understand what's happening in other jurisdictions. So, so just explain this a little bit more. So these applications are so important that one, if you don't do them correctly, you could be denied evidence that's important to present your version of events. But uh, second of all, if the you should have been allowed, and, and I've come across a, a few cases like this now on appeals, if you have to appeal a conviction and you're saying that one of the problems was that you should have been permitted the evidence, I have seen it be determined that the evidence may have been relevant but it has to be based on the application and the application did not define the purpose they wanted well enough therefore the application was properly denied so even though it could have been a different trial and that evidence may have been relevant a failure to conduct these applications properly and properly articulate all of the way the ways in which the facts are grounded in the evidence and how it's relevant right then um then it'll be seen as uh, not having you know basically being deficient not having provided all of the proper context to the purposes that you wanted to use the evidence so on for. appeal you lose yeah. and so the idea is that on appeal and this is typically a term in appeal you can't amplify the record by f further submissions as to what should have been stated at the time of the application we don't agree with that, and, and, and there are other jurists in appellate courts uh, to the opposite opinion that you can actually amplify because there are oral submissions in an application, and so you can give other reasons and you can take a look at it holistically, but there's a lot of cases that say if you didn't get it right the first time, you're f***ed on appeal. So if we look at what was actually said in Goldfinch, did you have Goldfinch in front of you right now? Or oh, something? yeah. Okay, so the, the thing that they're quoting is actually from paragraph five, I believe where they say that um, a bare assertion that evidence will be related to, will, will give context, narrative, or go to credibility. A bare assertion that that's the, the import, import of it and the purpose for it will not be sufficient to be granted the ability to use the evidence. And so this... So let me read that for a second. Yeah. So... The, Am I right? Paragraph five? Yep, yeah, bang on. <laughs> so... 
Section 276 requires an accused to positively identify a use of the proposed evidence that does not invoke twin myth reasoning. In other words, relevance... Twin, we should explain that just briefly. We w Okay, it's explain twin myth reasoning, yeah, not multi-myth reasoning. Yeah, so twin myths is, is basically the same evidence used for two improper purposes. So evidence that a woman has had sexual activity or a male complainant, whatever, that there has been sexual activity in, the, in, in a previous um, time frame makes them more likely to have consented to the, the sex in question and makes them less worthy of belief because they're not pure. They're not a virgin of some sort. And these are clear myths which we know and have understood for well over two decades. No doubt about that. So the court goes on to say, in other words, relevance is the key which unlocks the evidentiary bar, allowing a judge to consider the 276 factors, so the factors that set out in our in our criminal code, and to decide whether to admit the evidence is to be guided by these specific factors. Importantly, what you said, bear assertions that such evidence will be relevant to context, narrative, or credibility cannot satisfy Section 276. The evidence in this case should not have been admitted and a new trial is required. Done. Bear assertions that such evidence will be relevant to context, narrative, and credibility cannot satisfy 276. That is the bar. That is the bar to the admission of this evidence. That's the bar. Mm -hmm. So when when there is these arguments made that all this type of evidence is not admissible to context, narrative, or credibility, or in other and words... And they turn those into dirty words. Like if you use the word context or narrative, then all of a sudden it's just like, oh, we know you can't do that. Right, but, but, but this is where we meet with this argument that context and narrative is dead. That's absolutely an inaccurate analysis of the case law. Even Goldfinch... And we're going to take you back a little bit with the history of this legislation. But even this case from the Supreme Court of Canada simply says that bare assertions such as uh, bare assertion, bare assertions relevant to context, narrative or credibility cannot. That's just saying, I want to use this evidence. Mm -hmm. I've got a, a sex tape of me and this person having sex. And, you know, it's going to be relevant for narrative and context. But you don't you're say why. You're not describing why. You're not grounding it in evidence. You're not explaining how it's relative, uh, relevant to an issue in the case. And That's a bare assertion. One of my pet peeves that we see from, from Crown sometimes in their um, responses as well is that they forget that there are two versions of events that the, the evidence can be relevant to. It's not just what the complainant said and whether or not the evidence will contradict the complainant on something it can also be relevant to support the version of events that we say we anticipate are you know the accused will be will be giving yeah they they like to forget and i believe really hamstring an accused that they can only testify about a narrow set of facts right. and that's just not simply true there are fundamental rules about what a client should be able to testify to in a sexual assault case but they want to construe it in a way where really you can only talk about what informs consent at the time of the offense that that is that is the bullshit that we face in so many of these applications how is this evidence relevant to the issue of consent at the time of the alleged sexual assault and that is not always the only issue because a central issue in a criminal trial and a sexual assault trial is Oh my gosh, credibility. Right. It is almost always, well, always the central issue. And there's a reason why they call these he said, she said cases, because there's two versions of events. But uh, one of the phrases that we've come across with, with uh, one district in particular uh, is they say there's no air of reality to what the defense proposes they're going to say at trial because... The complainant said this. Therefore, there's no air of reality to a different version of events. Right, and that's just that's just poppycock. And what what am there, I there is constantly... no there is absolutely let, let's be clear on this. There is no rule of law that in order for a client to testify about his or her version of events, that there has to be an air of reality to it. That's just bullshit. That's something for trial to be determined, really. No, but 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 to testify to say this is what happened at the time 
that we were together and leading up to it, that there has to be an error reality to it, is inaccurate. That applies to another type of defense, not to your explanation as to what happened. But they loved the, anyway. Yeah. But, um, you know, to, to say that I remember, I remember seeing the first time this argument that the defense is not permitted to attack the complainant's credibility. Um, you know, using uh, evidence on, on that they're seeking on this application, that I was like, how did they even get there? Um, that you can't go after somebody's credibility, and, and and I ended up expressing it something like the fact that their credibility will be affected by the evidence is a consequence, not the actual purpose. The purpose of the evidence is to get at the truth of what happened. Right. So if we go back in time, and you're absolutely correct to cases like Seaboyer, uh, which is the first challenge to the first iteration of the 276 regime to prevent certain questioning about prior sexual history, to cases re like Regina versus Osolin, and then to the case of uh, Derek. Mm -hmm. Every single one of these cases refers to credibility as being a central issue mm -hmm. in all trials, including sexual assault trials, and relevant probative cross-examination is allowed. Like, so, these are Supreme Court of Canada decisions which are not overturned by Goldfinch or some mythical reasoning by some future Crown attorney or lawyer for a complainant. Credibility is very much at play in a sexual assault case, period. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know, there's, there's massive case law that also says the same thing, but the problem is these inconvenient phrasings, when you isolate them from the rest of the decision, because you know, in, in Goldfinch, there's a lot of things that support allowing evidence for certain purposes. I mean, we were going through it uh, earlier today again, and, uh, and they say, where a complainant denies the existence of a relationship, it will make evidence relevant. So talk about that for a second. Let's say you have a scenario where the accused and the complainant have dated for, the, uh, for uh, about four or five months. And there's an allegation of sexual assault, but the complainant in her testimony states, and I'm just saying her because it can, we can have a male complainant or an accused, a female complainant, but we're using an example we know of. And the complainant says, up until the point that this sex assault occurred, we were purely platonic. We did not have any intimacy whatsoever. We were just friends. Mm -hmm. So that casts the relationship in a certain narrative. In other words, it says, you know, it could actually say the complaint saying, I would never have had sex because we didn't even hold hands or kiss before this particular incident. We were just friends. So that's a narrative that the complainant describes leading up to the actual sexual assault. That's f***ing allowed by the prosecution. Not only allowed, but but um, it, it's elicited by the prosecution. So when they have their complainants sit down to, to start testifying, they say, so, so uh, you know, tell me about what happened and how you got there. That's narrative. Right. That's context. So it's allowed for them. Right. Right. And they're trying to say it's not allowed for us. So it's so now let's say your client says, oh, hold on, um, we'd been dating for four or five months and we had, you know, we had gone on walks, we had held hands, we had kissed. And and a week prior to this, we had sexual contact. We, we were very intimate. It was we had a nice time. And then and then, you know, the day before she says this happened, we also were intimate. And then on the night in question that we were intimate, well, you know, we had an argument afterward about where our relationship was going. We would not be able to advance that evidence to challenge the complainant's narrative about a platonic relationship unless we succeed at this application. And what is trying to be said by many is that's not relevant at all. I was just thinking about, um, you know, my favorite my favorite Stats. judge, JC, uh, Justice Pachauco from the Ontario Court of Appeal. Um, <laughs> I don't know, like, it seems sometimes that almost every case I, I say it is from Justice Pachauco. Look, it, he's, a, he's, a, he's, he's a, so clear. an excellent judge. He's so clear and in the way he writes outstanding writer. And he actually addressed some of, you know, a lot of these issues in a case called JC. And, uh, and one of the things he talks about is common sense and uh, whether or not common sense is permitted to be used. I really like the way he, he uh, expressed it. 
He says, to be clear, there is no bar on relying on common sense or human experience to identify inferences that arise about the evidence. Were that the case, circumstantial evidence would not be admissible since by definition, the relevance of circumstantial evidence depends on using human experience as a bridge between the evidence and the inference drawn. And he also makes the point that the concern is not whether you're using common sense or whether evidence in another section he talks about evidence that could be used for an improper purpose. And, and I think that's something to highlight. Yeah, but he says it must be grounded in the evidence in that particular case. So it must be grounded in evidence about the way that person uh, you know, behaves or uh, what that person says about their own emotions or feelings. Uh, and, and how is that relevant? Just like to the in these applications, issue. we go through statements that were made, and we ground our application in statements made by the complainant, so that it's so that it's not just some free floating bare assertion. It's grounded, right? And so, so really, one of the app comments by Justice Pachaco is that evidence is not barred because it could lead to myth based reasoning. Right. So here's that paragraph. He says, this is really important, again, for the 900th time we've mentioned through our podcast. The second critical point in understanding the rule against stereotypical inferences. Stereotypical inferences. So in this case, like where Crown quite often will say, I'm concerned about this evidence they want because it could be used for this improper purpose. It could be used and it's barred because it could be used. And so they seek to have it barred because it could be used. Stop. That way pause right that's an argument we face often and and if you know i'm curious to see what our viewers who are lawyers in other jurisdictions say about their jurisdictions but the argument actually they actually say this without laughing that um this evidence is inadmissible because it could be used and does raise myth-based reasoning not that it will and, and here you know here's the joke I, i've heard this on applications i know mr newberger's reputation i'm not trying to jerk myself here i know his reputation and is a skilled cross-examiner he would never intentionally do that but it has the potential to raise myth-based reasoning and there's a reason why we don't want it to be misused we certainly don't but that's not a bar justice pachaco has said clearly just because it can raise that doesn't mean it's automatically inadmissible in mm -hmm. fact it can be admissible if it's grounded in the evidence and relevant so he says the second critical point in understanding the rule against stereotypical inferences is that this rule prohibits certain inferences from being drawn. It does not prohibit the admission or use of certain kinds of evidence. And then he cites uh, a really great article written called Myth, Inference and Evidence in Sexual Assault Trials um, to further make that point. So just because evidence could be misused that's that's why we actually make closing submissions and and give guidance on and what the evidence right. was and also in our applications we lay out all of what's known about stereotypes and when there's when it's a stereotype what inferences can be drawn because we don't want judges to make a decision where they've misapplied you know our intentions with the evidence because then then it puts at jeopardy an acquittal just think about this for a second we're in an application and a trial and we're seeking to admit evidence that we strongly suggest is highly relevant to our defense and to challenge the narrative of the complainant. The argument against it is that it could raise inadvertently myth-based reasoning and therefore it should not be allowed. When we're saying we're not going to allow it to be used that way, we will be very careful to ensure that in our submissions that will be in writing, that we're never going to rely upon any myth-based reasoning. Yeah, like we're not going to make a submission. Let's like go back to the original thing we were talking about, twin twin mess. We're not going to make a submission saying, Your Honor, because she had sex with him uh, for a certain number of times, then clearly she's a slut and therefore she must have consented. Right, but but let's that's not even, the way these. But these with all due respect, painted, with all due respect, right? that that that's far off. This is much more. That's um, the way they talk about it in the media, though. Let, they talk like like defense lawyers. Okay, but let's let's talk that. about it in court for a moment. We're facing that there could be an argument about a myth that's that's. Those are just those are real myths that are just absolutely not applicable. We would never do that in a billion. There's a years. list of myths that I want to go through, and we will. Yeah. But but there's other myths that they're talking about. Okay, and and we'll we'll cover that for a moment. But just think about this logically for one second. We are specifically saying that as part of our case. As part of our submissions, ultimately, we will never make a submission based on the fact of any type of myth. And regardless of our undertaking, 
that that could not go to consideration by a judge, it still should not be admissible. Think about that for a moment. We go to great pains to make sure that all the, the potential you know, inferences that are prohibited are not put in I know, but I'm not trying to tout ourselves about this. What I'm trying to get people to think about well, I'm is... I'm just suggesting that other people should keep that in mind when, because when I, see a, when I see a case where somebody could have, you know, should have been able to do engage in lines of questioning, but they're not permitted to have a retrial because the applications weren't done right, it, 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 it's upsetting because, again, it's an access to justice problem. And the legislation's so new that people don't understand... And there's, I think too, one of the deficiency issues is that that there's a sort of an ethos where people think, well, I don't want to put my stuff out early, as if you're not going to have to testify in a sexual assault trial. But I, I don't really know, but it's just, it's so important, you know. Like I, I really hope that you know there's there becomes a little more coherence on, on how to do these things and what's expected. And coherence is not something that we got from the JJ decision, as far as I'm concerned. What I'm trying to just focus on for a second, and your points are extremely well made and they're and they're apt and they're right. I'm trying to focus on the speciousness of the argument against the admissibility of the evidence. Yeah. That and, and and this is really important, that this evidence, although maybe relevant, should not be admissible because it could possibly lead to a myth based reasoning for which the defense will not do. Pause. That's a specious, unmeritorious argument that can create incredible mischief with the right to make full answer in defense and can lead to wrongful convictions. That is not an argument that should ever be made, specifically in the face of of any lawyer for the defense, not just us, any lawyer who specifically says, look, here's how it's relevant. Here's how I'm going to use it, because that's what we do. We lay it out. And I, I am telling you, I will not use it for these purposes. And the judge will be instructed on that by us in our submissions. So that argument should never be made against the admission of the evidence. Grounded in something that makes sense, not some hypothetical possible up by a judge down the road. That's not a way to exclude evidence. And that's highly dangerous. But some of the arguments that we've had sprung on us, and they, they do literally get sprung, so we don't get responses to the applications until the last minute. And I understand Crown well, are, they're busy. Are, are very busy and, and overwhelmed. But um, so some of the arguments that have come up, we've kind of gone, what? And finding the, the case law to, to rebut it, like, you know, I, I've been running up and down, printing stuff off and like bringing it back because we, we just didn't even expect a certain argument to be made. Yeah. You know, and of course now we, we've, we've heard most of it by now because we've done so I many know, of these. probably going to be something else. I'm sure there will be. But um, so um, the interpretation of some you know the wording and stuff you know this is one of the reasons people hate law so much when they hear lawyers talk about it it's all about words you're just arguing about words not about real people's lives or something and sometimes it can seem like it and this one particular thing that comes up a lot in these applications is that they say and we we just had this well i can see that it might be probative but it's not significantly probative of an issue at trial great point let me just can i just close a loop on something so we were talking about whether this is dead or not, you know, narrative or whatever. So I just want to take Goldfinch for a moment and read this into the podcast. So I just closed a deal on this one because we were faced with this argument. And then we're going to move on to your excellent point because the next stupid thing that's being mm-hmm. said to us. So Goldfinch, which is being held up to say that context is dead and narrative dead, says the following paragraph 63. Evidence of a sexual relationship may also be relevant when the complainant's the complaining accused have offered inconsistent statements regarding the very existence of the relationship with the accused. There are, there were, um, so in this case, there was no contradictory statements, but the very existence or the inconsistency between the complainant's version and the accused can give rise to why the context or the narrative of the sexual relationship is relevant. Goldfinch um, stands for also the proposition that relationship evidence may be relevant to the coherence of the accused narrative and by extension credibility. There will be circumstances in which context will be relevant to the jury to properly understand and assess the evidence. That assessment, however, must be free of twin, twin myth reasoning. General arguments that sexual nature of relationship relevant to context, narrative, or credibility will not suffice. Right, bare assertions will not suffice. This is so important. This is Goldfinch itself. Mm-hmm. 
And a lot of these issues that we're talking about too, I think in this case that like we mentioned, I'm really concerned about, it's called TWW, just came out of the uh, British Columbia Court of Appeal. There was a dissenting judge on the Court of Appeal, so that gives them a right to appeal to the Supreme Court. And a lot of these issues are mentioned in the dissent. So um, let's get there in one sec. But just just the, the Goldfinch gives instruction. The majority gives instruction. In fact, they were all in the majority. So the accused application is survive scrutiny will have to fall through as falls. This to satisfy the relevance requirement, the accused must demonstrate that the evidence goes to a legitimate aspect of his defense as integral to his ability to make full answer in defense. This requires the accused to be able to identify specific facts or issues relating to his defense that can be properly understood and resolved by a trier of fact only if reference is made to the sexual activity in question. In articulating these facts or issues, simply citing the need for greater context or fuller narrative is not enough. We have said that, and that goes back in time to Seaboyer and other cases. Nobody has ever argued with this. Goldfinch is nothing new. Gold- Ben's calling me. Goldfinch, that's my son. Goldfinch is nothing new. There's nothing new about this. This does not. This does not mean that context and narrative is dead. It, it does not mean that. It didn't change the law. It maybe simply clarified some issues, but it did not end that line of evidence. Any argument to the contrary is wrong. Now, it was mostly urging people, <clears throat> there was a trilogy of decisions, Barton, Goldfinch, and RV that all came out back to back at the beginning of 2019. And they were really just urging um, the courts to be more cautious about the way they handled 276 applications. Great. Needed a reminder. Right. I'm all about reminders. Mm-hmm. Now, you raised an issue when it cut you off, which I want you to talk about is, so how relevant does this have to be? Right. It has to be significantly probative. What the f*** does that mean? Because they want you to believe that it's like trying to get over the 75% threshold. Mm-hmm. What does it really mean, Diana? So the, the phrasing is along the lines of, <clears throat> so I think now with the new legislation, there's there's two different versions and two different sections. But anyways, yeah. the, the general phrasing is the, the evidence must have significant probative value that is not outweighed by its prejudicial effect. So in Very translation, yeah. probative value means it will tend to prove a material issue, not some frivolous sort of side thing, right? But it's going to go to an actual live issue to do with narrative and context and credibility and so on. And that it it's, has some ability to assist with determining the, the truth or the likelihood of one version being more true than the other. Good. That's probative value. Well explained. Prejudicial effect means that there's some sort of damage done to somebody's reputation that's not necessarily justifiable or, or to their dignity and privacy so dignity and privacy are the main focus of the um you know and why complainants have representation by counsel now so we're seeing quite often that they take that word significant and say you know like in this this latest one well i can see it you know it has some probative value but it's not significant therefore you shouldn't be allowed to use the evidence significant and it must be significant so in JJ that said this legislation is... is um, Recent Supreme Court of Canada case. Yeah, just came out uh, in, within the last month or so. Um, they cite a case called Derek, which I also have, um, which we, we mentioned earlier, um, which said the legislation's uh, constitutional, which JJ says it's constitutional. Right. This court found that the phrase significant probative value... Um, in the 276 context, that's the sexual, you know, prior sexual history applications, simply requires that the evidence not be so trifling as to be incapable in the context of all the evidence of raising a reasonable doubt. Repeat that again slowly. And the most important part is the beginning, that the evidence is not so trifling, right? So they're saying the word significant just means it's not trifling. And the interpretation of that is so important because if they didn't interpret it that way, then it would violate constitutional rights of the accused. Then the entire regime would be unconstitutional. Right. Because Does everybody understand that? If, if it was to be such a high threshold that the argument often by the Crown or a complainant's lawyer is, this legislation would be utterly unconstitutional. In order to 
remain constitutional. To make the a full answer and defense. The threshold for evidence to be admissible, in other words, to be significant, really mean. And this is when courts and lawyers f around with words that, that are really frustrating. But it requires the evidence not be so trifling as to be incapable in the context of all of the evidence of raising a reasonable doubt, which means it just has to be kind of relevant. Yeah, and when you when you go to Derek to the paragraph that they're citing, which is paragraph thirty nine, they go even further to say that it you know, must be interpreted to mean that it was not necessary for the appellant, the accused, to demonstrate strong and compelling reasons for admission of the evidence. That is not required. And yet, the word significant is now being presented as being well. We have to prove it's a reverse onus because all of the evidence is, and this is an important phrase too, presumptively inadmissible unless you meet a certain threshold. But the problem is the threshold to be constitutional must be actually quite low. It can't be trifling. And although we have to show it has some relevance, we don't have to make a strong and compelling case because it's not the trial. And you hear me yell that when I'm reading these, these responses yeah. all the time, that's a trial issue. This is not the trial. <laughs> right, they, they seek to screen it out. And here, you know, and, and let's be fair now. So the balance to the privacy interests and the integrity of a complainant is that the balance will be, and the court does this, is that this non-trifling evidence, okay, non-trifling evidence should not be substantially outweighed by the risk of prejudice. So in other words... And also substantially outweighed. Substantially outweighed. So you're going to, the court has to do a balance. There's evidence that is relevant and it's non-trifling. So it has significance, right? It's not some, we use the word despotive. It's not going to solve the case. It's, it's not the smoking gun. It's, it's evidence that can raise an inference to support the defense and contradict something of the complainant. And we got to see, does this evidence substantially harm the complainant's privacy or integrity? And most of the time it doesn't because of the probative nature of this evidence. And if you're careful and calculated and smart about the way you look at your evidence because you don't want to screw up your trial in any event, you're going to put your best foot forward and show why it's relevant and it's going to be admissible. Mm -hmm. This is the threshold. This is the standard. Another thing I liked from JJ was they actually said, I don't have the paragraph in front of me, but um, they, they actually make a point to say that part of the reason it's constitutional is that when you're looking at the risk of prejudice to a complainant's dignity or comfort, they said mere discomfort will not be enough. That it actually has to, you know, be a significant violation in, in that balancing equation. You're absolutely correct. Now, you know what? We're getting close to running long on this, and I apologize. But you raised something earlier, which I think we have to look at, is there, there is a never-ending list of f***ing myths yes. that they're trying to create in the courts. Like, it's a myth that... That, that women th lie about rape. Yeah, and, and it, that it, it, it's, it's... Which one, what? It's dangerous, and it's a myth that an accused should ever... If there's a complaint of sexual assault, an accused, it's a myth that the, the, the accused would deny that that actually occurred. Right. So in other words, because so one of your defenses could be, we never had sex. That, that's actually from a case. Um, but no, this, really? this idea too, like, you know, the idea that it's a myth that women lie about rape would mean that if you plead not guilty, you're engaging in a rape myth. Right? So you're shut down already. Like that's, that's By pleading you know, not stereotypes. Guilty. So it, if you take it to its extreme insanity, right? Yeah. So there was a list and it's in Seaboyer, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit further to like, I can't remember. I was originally looking, they only have page numbers at a certain point. Um, but I did, yeah, I started highlighting them. There's, so there's a list of things that are rape myths and some of them we agree, we agree with, right? So the twin myths. A lot myths, of them we agree with. The twin myths are, are included in there. There's a thing called, it's called the doctrine of recent complaint, which is this idea that if somebody doesn't uh, make a complaint right away, then they, they're less credible or they're lying. So we don't, we understand there's lots of reasons that people won't report right away. But there Absolutely. were there were three that really upset me, and this is a list. In it, it's not uh, the majority decision, but it's a partially concurring decision written by Justice Lerhero DeBay, um, where she says she's citing an academic and she gives this list of things that are myths. And so the three that upset me kind of came near the end, and that's because two of them. Do you want to look at this for a second? Yeah, two of them are actually to motives there's... to fabricate. <laughs> so, so near the end, they say. Women as fickle and full of spite. 
Another stereotype is that the feminine character is especially filled with malice. Women, uh, woman is seen as fickle and seeking revenge on past lovers. So, you know, and we've actually seen this called a rape myth that uh, to say that somebody is a uh, spurned lover. It's happening right now yeah. in an application that will be heard later this month where some, where the Crown is arguing that a motive to fabricate because the person was a spurned lover is a myth. Right. And, you know, but but it does happen. It doesn't... To think that it happens, that's that's always why somebody is making an allegation. You know, so that would be fallacious. Nobody... This is, again, denying human behavior. You know, and why people do the shit they do. Why people lie. Why people make up stories. Why people want to hurt each other. Why, why, why? Why? And we see it in family court all the fucking time. So for, for the Crown Attorney to actually argue that women are incapable of making a false allegation because they would be spurned of a man. Mm -hmm. It's just bullshit. And you have a study here yeah. that we can reference and which yeah, we can motives, just do it quick. We're going to have to come back. Motives for filing this. false allegations of rape. But, we, but it's we an actual actually, study um, that's peer-reviewed and reliable and validated. Yeah, and um, but we had a great analogy as we were like going through this thing and, and talking about these. We're saying, oh, okay, well, there's a reason why people say barns are red. It's because there's quite a few red barns. There are. But just because there's quite a few red barns doesn't mean all barns are going to be red. Drive through northern Ontario or rural Ontario or, you know, the breadbasket of our f***ing province. Take a look at how many barns are red or some shade of f***ing brown or green, okay? Not all are green, not all are red, or not all are brown. Just like not all men will lie, not all women will lie. But there is a reason. But some people do, and some barns are red. And there's a good reason why most of the time people think of a barn, they think of a red barn. Right. And even in Seaboyer, it specifically spoke about, and in Oslin and others, that you cannot deny the building blocks of a defense, which may include a motive to fabricate. Motive to I fabricate is not a f***ing myth. Motive to fabricate is a legitimate aspect of a criminal defense yeah. to an allegation. Because people make shit up because they're angry at somebody else. The motive to fabricate is always seen as an extremely probative area of cross-examination. But, but, but what we're facing now is that there's an argument that it's actually a myth that a woman, it, a spurn, there's no such thing as we'll a spurned lover a who will lie for a particular reason. So the next and like, one. are you kidding me? The next one is also motive related. So Why are we doing this? And this is from case law. This is from Supreme Court. It says, the female under surveillance... Uh, is the victim trying to escape punishment? And goes on to say, it is assumed that a female's sexual behavior, depending on her age, is being surveilled by her parents or her husband, or more generally, you know, people of the community. Thus, the defense argues if a woman says she was raped, it must be because she consented to sex that she was not supposed to have. She got caught, and now she wants to get back into the good graces of whom, who, whoever surveillance she was under. So this is a crazy way. This is a crazy way of saying what? Doctor, uh, was it Mr. Cotta? Mr. Cotta, Mr. Cotta. Can I say something, Mr. Cotta? For those of you who are as old as I am, you'll remember I what remember show that's from. That. I had a trial. Okay. Just, just bear with me, please. I'm sorry. This is a long time ago, when when the law was normal, and the complainant was married. The accused was married. They went to a casino. He gave her money to gamble. They gambled together. They had a really good time. They went back to a hotel. They had sex. On the way back, the f***ing husband of the complainant met them, accused her of cheating on him, and she said, I was raped. Right. Okay? And said, the whole time I was with he kidnapped me. I was completely unhappy. I didn't want to be with him. He was forcing me to do everything. It was awful. And guess what? Her husband took her back, and we went to trial. And guess what? I was able to get, and, and Grace at our office was able to assist in going through hours of surveillance camera footage from the casino they gave it to us god bless because in back that back that day if we wrote to them they actually gave us okay mm -hmm. now they go no i have to give it to the police which will never act we'll never go get it so we got several hours of footage from the casino broke it down into segments screenshot everything this was un it was probably one of the most satisfying cross-examinations can I just have like four minutes for this? So this complainant asked to testify behind a screen. So I denied it. I said, I'm not agreeing. Police officer who was in charge testified and said, no, no, she's very scared. Uh, this will allow for her to tell the truth. And I asked one question. Your officer, 
Do you believe the complainant? Absolutely, I do. Have you ever met a complainant you never believed? No, I haven't. Do you believe in any way, shape, or form that testifying behind a screen will help the complainant lie? No, that's absolutely not true, Mr. Newberger. Okay? So then the officer sat beside me, and I got to cross-examine. I didn't f***ing turn over the surveillance until about a week before. Nobody read it. Nobody looked at it. Nobody did anything. I turned it over. I didn't have to back then. Okay? There were video of the complainant with my client at the poker table kissing him, mm -hmm. stroking his neck, touching him, kissing him. As he won a pot of money, he gave her a thousand dollars. And we're going back like a period of time. They're going to the cash out room. She's kissing him and touching him and stroking him. And he's giving her money and they're holding hands and they're making out. Okay. Mm -hmm. And screen after screen, I stilled it on a big camera. And I went by, sir, was this you hating it? Was this you not wanting to go near him? Was this you not liking it? Sorry, did you not like the $2,000 he gave you at that f***ing point? There was, she was dead, 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 f***ing dead. And I remember turning to the officer during my cross-examination. Well, you've met an innocent accused now, officer. All right. <laughs> they withdrew. But this is a stark example. And we do not get cases where it's going to be on continuous surveillance. This is like a rarity so this is called just just to, to remind but people that, but this that is, is supposed to be a rape myth that, yes that's a rape myth that a woman would make up a lie to cover her tracks for cheating it is called alibi and is in this paper peer-reviewed paper the number one reason that people uh, have have who admit they lied have said that they lied about it was for an alibi for one reason it could be because they got caught cheating or it could be because they they failed an exam or they had a bunch of other things but alibi is number one reason and so then the other one that you um unbelievable that you mentioned as being uh, and this this goes to the core of an actual defense and it'll be the thing we end on is apparently a rape myth disputing that sex even occurred right disputing that sex occurred that females fantasize rape is another uh, common stereotype. Females are assumed to make up stories that sex occurred when in fact nothing happened. Similarly, women are thought to fabricate the sexual activity not as part of a fantasy life, but out of spite. So it starts out sounding like, okay, this, this sounds like something you're like, yeah, rape fantasies or whatever. Some people might engage in that, but that's not common. And it shouldn't be a stereotype. But what what comes afterwards is more important. Assuming that women make up stories that sex occurred when in fact nothing happened, and that they're doing it not as a fantasy but out of spite. So that means that if somebody says, if their defense is not no, she consented, yeah, sex happened, but she consented. But if their their defense is, as we've had cases before, there was no sex. That apparently is a rape myth. Can you just repeat that one more time? So everybody understands this because it defies logic and human nature and uh, God forbid I say this common sense. So, you know, it also assumes that if there was an opportunity for sex, that a guy would engage in it. So therefore women, how many know, times have we faced that cross-examination of oh our no. client? The you mean to tell me you were in a bedroom with her and you guys were lying down and sex wasn't on your mind. Mm -hmm. She's only wearing blah, 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 blah. There's another thing too is I remember, you know, uh, hearing somebody say, oh, I heard that there's not a single sexual assault case where women aren't asked what they were wearing. That is so sick. And I was like, of course they're asked what they were wearing. So we need to know how the clothes got off. Great. But do I, do, have I ever in the years you've watched and been assisting me and working with me oh. collaboratively in, in all these the cases. The choice of clothing. Have I ever asked important. about the choice of clothing? No. It's only important if it's, if it's something that's really complicated to get off or if it's something, you know... It goes to the unfolding the of the events. The what they're wearing. Right, but like, they can wear whatever they want. I know. They can have whatever preferences they want. But that the has nothing to do with veracity or non-veracity. No matter how sexy the lingerie, sometimes the guy actually didn't have sex with them. Right. Yeah, it's <laughs> the male... It's the myths. Defense. It's the myths about male sexual aggression. And we've had, we've had the ability to get there. But the myths that they want to try and have codified in law now is that the, that that a man who would say against this allegation what uh, we didn't have sex i don't know what the she's talking about mm -hmm. that would be a myth that would be a lie and it's not just saying it wasn't me like an identity issue they're saying no i was there we went out there was no sex fabricating an that's, allegation that's of sexual assault myth how dare you not have sex with that woman <laughs> fabricating an allegation of sexual assault because you're pissed off against this guy because he ghosted you 
and fucking made you feel humiliated and you look back on it and think, well, this wasn't consensual. Yeah, that's a fucking myth. No, that's not a myth. It's reality. Yeah. Or God forbid you're in the context of a high, high conflict divorce and, and an allegation of sexual assault is made up so you can get fucking sole custody of the children and fuck them all the way through the family court system. No, these are all fucking myths. And if we go down that road, we're all dead. Yeah, I know, because pleading not guilty actually makes you guilty of a rape. No, but we're dead because there will be no way for us to engage in human relations and have trust. I fear fear for those who come after us, that Mm. they have to live in this world of creativity that these people dream up about human relations. Well, the expectations on the way people behave sexually has to match actual human behavior as well. So... There's, there's an actual drive to, to get legislation in place and to, to change the way people actually interact with each other so that you need to, you need to get, and this gets back to the, the, the carefulness of the wording that, that's required in these cases, um, that you're actually going to require verbal consent before you can do anything. But even if you got verbal consent, as we've seen some other cases, judges won't believe you. They'd be like, yeah, nobody actually be- behaves We're in another way. topic now. But I, yeah. I think, you know, right. sort of the sum up of this is that, that we're going to an absurd length and, and yeah. we're meeting these in applications. I think it angered us enough to actually go back and review this case law. And the reality is the case law that, that's come out is somewhat complex and not that helpful in some respects. But really, it's just a reminder of principles we've had in place for over two decades. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing f- new cannot, here. We cannot undermine our legal system with the goal as we are kind of hearing, with the goal of increasing convictions right. and getting more justice for assumed victims. And if the, it, and if this victims. application process now, under 276 and 278, is used as a bar to admitting relevant evidence, it's highly probative, and then it is a roadmap for wrongful convictions, wrongful as convictions. noted by the, the, by the dissenting judges in JJ. Exactly. Until next time, and more rants on behalf of Not On Record... Thank you for listening and watching. Like, subscribe, hit notifications, leave comments. We do actually read them. But you know what? Please, you know, we've got people from other jurisdictions. Give us your comments. I love reading about what's going oh, on I in know. your jurisdictions. It's really great. Thank yeah. you. And thank right. you very much. Everybody. Good night.